the Jodcast. Good vibrations. With Indy DeClerc, Tim O'Brien, Mark Perver, and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, January 2014, Extra Edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Indy, and joining me in the studio today are Christina and Mark. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, we talk to Professor Valery Nakaryakov about waves and oscillations in the sun. And Professor Tim O'Brien answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Indy talks to ex-Jodcaster Dr. Liz Guzman in a special guest Jodbite all the way from the Atacama Desert. For this month's Jodbite, the interviewer becomes the interviewee. Today I'm with uh, Liz Guzman, now Dr. Lizette Guzman, formerly of Jodrell Bank and now working for ESO, the European Southern Observatory, in Santiago. Hi, Liz. Hi. So we're doing this interview by Skype, um, and Liz is currently working for ESO and, most interestingly, is um, working on the ALMA project. So as a start, Liz, could you kind of just give us a bit of a run-through of um, what ALMA is and, and what it does? Of course. Yeah, 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 sure. So... ALMA is what well, stands for the Atacama Large Millimeter and Submillimeter Array. And what it is is 66 uh, huge antennas. Well, it's actually um, some of them are 12 meters and some of them are 7 meter antennas. And they are all spread in the Chagnantor Valley, which is in, in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And what they do is they record um, or they, they observe all the submillimeter sky, let's say. So we 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 use ALMA to observe submillimeter galaxies and observe carbon monoxide, so CO mainly. But you can observe tons of molecules, and and people like to say that actually ALMA is observing the the let's say cold part of the universe because it's always for you to detect molecules they have to be in a cold environment, let's say, because if it's too hot then you dissociate the molecules, so you don't see the molecules anymore. So. You detect molecules everywhere, and you also detect uh, carbon monoxide everywhere. So you detect it in star formation, in planet formation, in, as I say, in galaxies, and evolve the stars um, pretty much everywhere in the universe. So ALMA is sort of the biggest telescope in the world that is doing this, and it's a huge project. So it's mainly three different parties, let's say. So it's the, the NRAO, which is in the U.S., and then is ESA, which is the European Southern Observatory, and then is Japan, the the National Observatory of Japan. So um, there's like people from everywhere in in here, and so I I got a fellowship from ESA with my duties in Alma. So I have to come up here because I'm in Alma right now. I have to come up here uh, once a month to do sort of observatory duties, so either producing data, observations, or trying to test something. So right now we're still doing a bit of commissioning, so observing new stuff, and, and we're still um, adding more new antennas, right? So every day we have new antennas that we have to add to the array, and for you to add them you have to do uh, tons of tests. So we have to do that, and then we have to do observations as well. So how many antennas are currently functioning? So up in the high side we have 54 right now, but functioning we have about 40. So the total is going to be 66, so there's still another 12 that need to be sort of installed and brought up to the to the high site. Yeah, yeah. Some of them are already in the high site, but they haven't been like properly sort of integrated to the array. And 
down in the control room, we have, I think we have around seven antennas that we're still doing some tests and stuff. Yeah. But all of the antennas have been built. So the last one, constructed one, was delivered to us, which is like science, about two months ago, I think. Nice. So just, I think, probably to clarify for our listeners, you're talking about the high site and the control room. Uh, could you describe a little bit what the, the Alma location, the Alma complex is like? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So it's, it's actually pretty cool. So, right, so you're in, from Santiago. All of the astronomers, we sort of live in Santiago or around Santiago, let's say. And then we have to fly to Calama, which is like north. And then from Calama, we have to take a bus to San Pedro which is pretty touristic. So maybe people have heard of San Pedro de Atacama. Um, so you go to San Pedro and then Alma is about 40 minutes away from San Pedro. You're still going north of Chile. And then you get to the camp site, let's say, which this is about 2,500 meters up in sea level. So this is where you have the dorms and you have the control room. And then what we call the high site is where the antennas are. And this is at 5,000 meters. So, for example, engineer people and electronic people and sometimes software people, they have to go to the high side almost every day to check everything in the antennas and check that things are going smooth and stuff. And if everything is broken, of course, they have to go and fix it. Uh, us, the astronomers, we don't really have to go to the high side. I, I've been a few times because I just want to go and see how it's like, but, but we don't have to operate in the high side. We operate from the control room, which is at 2,500. So the main thing that sets Alma apart is essentially the number of antennas that it has, and it can get, if I understand correctly, it can get the highest resolution so far of a, of a telescope that operates at these wavelengths. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's pretty impressive, to be honest. Actually, even from cycle zero, which, okay, so Alma is divided into, like, let's say, different stages when when you have some many antennas that you can operate, and then you you call that cycle zero, let's say. And then you, you get up more antennas and you call that cycle one and then more antennas and you call that cycle two, let's say. So even in cycle zero, which we only have 13 antennas, that was, that was already like pretty high resolution and it was sort of the level of, of the Hubble telescope, which, which is already quite high, right? After that, I mean, right now cycle, well, cycle one was 32 antennas and cycle two now is 34 antennas. So the good thing of ALMA is that you have the compact array in the center, which are the seven major antennas, and those are good to see extended emission of the objects. So imagine that you have a big dish, let's say, a very big dish that you can see a lot of stuff, like the big stuff in, in a galaxy. Let's say you see the, the spiral arms and you see all the star formation regions around the spiral arms in the center. Mm -hmm. But but the 12-meter antennas that are like spread around they actually can see very, very like high resolution stuff of the one of the star from region, star from in region, let's say. Right. So you can get like the very, very high resolution stuff and also the extended emission, which, which is like amazing because it gives you both. Yeah, that's, that's the cool thing about interferometry, basically, because it, it sort of just depends on, on the baseline, on how far away uh, two antennas are, are from each other, and that determines how what kind of resolution you get. So if you've got a bunch of different antennas, then you can combine everything, which is pretty cool, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As Alma, what, what are the major results that Alma has had so far? Any sort of cool pictures or, or, or new things that have made scientists sort of rethink their, their theories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty pretty awesome. So 
um, uh, one that I remember that it was stuck in my head or still stuck in my head. So, you know, we have this like idea of uh, planetary formation. So th there was a bunch of group of people trying to observe a planet in the formation stages, right? So you have star and you have a disk that they call the protoplanetary disk. And then you have a planet inside that is just forming just at the beginning of the formation. And this is because we wanted to test all the theories of planetary formation, right? And, and also to, to understand how our solar system was formed, right? So they, they observed with ALMA and all these things and, and they had the models, right? And the model predicted certain things, let's say. I don't know. Let's say the model predicted a round disk with a ball in the middle, which is the planet. And then in the center, you have the star. So they got the, the ALMA observations and they actually realized that the models were very wrong, right? So, that actually what you see is not is not a very round and perfect disk. It's actually you have some sort of they call it the the horseshoe. So you have some sort of a a horseshoe, let's say, where where you actually have a higher density of gas and dust where the planet is forming, actually. Which which intuitively actually makes more sense, right? Because if you have an homogeneous stuff, then you're never gonna form a planet because you need actually clumps or you need to to have higher density stuff. So then they, they sure. have to, they have to sort of remake the models and they had to think about it. And, and they actually, now they, they sort of makes more sense and they have better models that they can predict what's going to happen to these. And they, they actually want to observe it because this actually evolves quickly ish, right? Let's say in a few years, you can see the evolution. It's not like normal astronomical stuff that evolves in a million years, right? <laughs> so. So they want to test these things in a few years again with Alma and, and all these things is actually what, what makes us like scientists to be sort of curious about these things and, and, and excited, right? Because you always think that you can predict things and then you realize that actually, no, you, you need to think more about it and you need to understand better and you need more observations. And this is why Alma is so amazing because he's sort of changing the way we think in a way. Nice. Yeah, that's the, the mantra of, of astronomers, isn't it? Always more observations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely. So, so can you, what's your like sort of typical day um, up at Alma? Like, could you just maybe talk us through what, what you have to do, what your responsibilities are at the telescope? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right. So right now, I, my shift, I'm, I'm a night shift and the night shift is mainly observations, right? So I'm doing observations. So my shift starts at 10 in the evening and then we have an overlap with the day astronomers. So for an hour, so in this hour, they, they told me what they done and they sort of give me like a plan of what do we need to do for the night. Okay. So, so we mainly have, let's say, the plan of, of integrating new antennas and doing what we call early science, which is observing, really observing targets, right? So we, we have this plan and then they leave at 11 and I, there's normally two astronomers. So it's, it's me and another astronomer that I stayed the whole night up okay. to seven in the morning. So we observed oh. the whole, yeah. So from, from sort of 10 to seven in the morning and you just like, you just go through the, there's, there's even like a wiki page that has the top priorities of what things you need to do. So just, okay. you just go through the top priorities and the observations and what you need to do and, um, try to, so there's a whole process, right? There's a lot of software involved that you have to sort of, um, let's, let's say that every, every time you have to observe something, you have a whole, um, sort of a schedule of what target it is, what calibration do you have to do, 
what um i don't know other let's say because because every time you calibrate you have to observe different targets like um flux calibration and phase calibration or, or position calibration let's say so you have to like check that everything is fine and then run the observation and then you leave it running and while it's running you can just like i don't know go and get a coffee or chat with the astronomer or <laughs> or like okay. yeah make sure that the next one is ready and all these things and and i mean if it runs smoothly then it's perfect right sometimes it doesn't run as smoothly as you wish so <laughs> it's really cool because you have a whole like team of engineers and software people and everyone like sort of next to you or behind you or or in, a, in their offices but if something crashes like if they correlate to crashes or something you just call someone and, and they come and they try to fix it and they and then you'd run again and all these things it's, it's pretty cool yeah nice yeah so i mean for example if you're observing something it's is it literally just the case of typing in the command then 30 telescopes will move at the same time to sort of observe something in the sky sort of is it's, it's called so every <laughs> every observation is called they has a an scheduling block that's how it's called so the, okay. the so the the scheduling block has the coordinates and has how much time does like the antennas have to stay in these coordinates and then they have to move to uh, a calibrator and then they have to go back and all these things so the scheduling blocks has everything it's like a script let's say so you run the script okay. Yeah, because I mean, uh, I know that I mean this. This is it's a completely different process to to sort of optical telescopes, where well, obviously they don't work as an as an array for starters, and then you you get a more probably visual more visual feedback as to what you're looking at, as opposed to with um, with radio or, or or millimeter waves, where you have to you collect the data first, and then you have to sort of process it and reduce it until you get something that looks like a picture, really. Right. So yeah, every time you run a script or the, the scheduling block, we have some sort of a very, very uh, quick uh, sort of way to see the data that, that we just got. So you, it's like a very broad data reduction script and you do that and you check if it was observed fine, sort of, because sometimes you don't know if, if you had a jump in the, I don't know, in the flux or something went wrong. So you just check very briefly and then if it's fine, you just let it go. Yeah. So... Now, as a question, as as our as our guest, John Bytee, I suppose, um, is there anything you particularly miss about Manchester? <laughs> I do, I do miss Manchester a lot. <laughs> and of course, I the podcast. <laughs> Alma is awesome. It's an awesome project, <laughs> and I'm really happy to be working at Alma and, and Ariso as well. Um, but I mean, I don't know. It's a different country, and and I like Chile as well, and I like Chileans. But I do miss Manchester a lot. I miss I miss the podcast, and I miss, um, I don't know. I miss a lot of things. I, I yeah. We haven't really mentioned it, but Manchester plays a, a, a fair a fair role in in, uh, in Alma business as well because Manchester is what's called an ARC, an Alma Regional Centre. So, could you just say a couple of words about what that involves? Yeah, sure, sure. It's actually pretty important because it's sort of the nod in in, in Europe or like one of the nods in Europe, which is pretty important. So, what what the Manchester people do in 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 the Arc node is sort of they actually go through all the data that we just took and they sort of analyze, um, they have different roles, right? But some of the roles are to give back the data to the PI, to the to the astronomer that sort of wanted to get the observation. Uh, sometimes they just, they just give us some tests that they want to like take ALMA to the extremes, right? Like like try to do things that no one taught or, or um, sort of what to, 
like how to improve observations, how to improve calibration, how to improve the data. Um, and they, they actually, they do a lot of sort of tutorials with, with the general astronomers, how to reduce the data and like the capabilities of ALMA and to promote ALMA, let's say. So there's this is a very super like important job as well. Yeah. I, I, like we all have contact with all the ARC notes and they have a meeting every like once a month. There's a meeting with every ARC people and like to, to make sure that we're all on the same page and what are we doing and. Great. Well, that was all really, really interesting, uh, Liz. Thanks a lot for being our, our guest job by interviewee this month. Uh, I hope it wasn't too weird being on the other side of the microphone, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit. No, 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 but it's pretty cool. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, no problem, no problem. Um, thanks a lot. All right, take care, Liz. Take care, thank you. Thanks for that, Indy. And now we have Christina talking to Professor Valeri Nakaryakov about magnetohydrodynamical waves on the sun. Joining me in the studio today is Professor Valari Nakarekov from the University of Warwick. Mm-hmm. And you've just given a talk about waves and oscillations in the solar corona. So can I start by asking you, what makes up the solar corona? What actually is the solar corona? Oh, so the solar corona is the uh, upper part, so the uppermost part of the solar atmosphere. So where the temperature for some still not very well understood reason uh, increases. So the temperature of this part of the solar atmosphere is about 1 million Kelvin in comparison with the uh, temperature of the surface of the sun, which is about 6,000 Kelvin, so much, much lower. And because of this high temperature, so the gas of the atmosphere is almost fully ionized, meaning so the corona of the sun is the plasma shell of the sun. In the Earth atmosphere, we have the ionosphere, so the ionized part of the Earth atmosphere. So the similar part of the solar atmosphere is the corona. But in contrast with the Earth ionosphere, the corona of the sun is very extended. So it actually begins um, at the height of a few thousand kilometers from the surface of the sun and extends further up to the heliosphere. And actually, so we can say that the Earth is embedded in the corona of the sun. So we live in this plasma of the solar corona, which is very hot and magnetized. So the solar corona is pretty huge then and do we know why it's so hot in there no it's one of the enigmatic questions <laughs> I, so enigmatic problems of modern solar physics i mentioned it's so the coronal heating problem is has been on the table for a very long time so about 30 years possibly people so keep trying to answer this question possibly it's connected with the waves and oscillations which i mentioned today so the deposition of uh, energy so which is um, say carried by the waves in the plasma so maybe the source of of this uh, hidden, but it's still, so the jury is still very much out. Okay, so you mentioned these waves and oscillations. What are they waves and oscillations of? You said of the plasma, is that right? Uh, yes, it's a plasma and the magnetic field, and in this, say, plasma, so there is a very interesting physical property, which, uh, so we call a frozen-in magnetic field uh, property, so meaning, so we can't distinguish between the motion of the plasma and the motion of the magnetic field. If we displace so some piece of plasma, it drags the magnetic field with it. And the other way around, if we somehow change the magnetic configuration, this change causes the motion of the plasma. So hence this oscillations is the combined uh, oscillations or perturbations of the magnetic field and of the plasma, meaning plasma flows and perturbations of the density of the plasma. Okay, so what actually causes these oscillations and waves? 
Actually, so any dynamical processes can cause oscillations and waves. It's like so what I use today uh, in my talk. So the analogy, if you have a pond, we can throw a stone or we can do something else. So I mean, any dynamical process uh, causes so perturbation, development of the perturbation uh, in a form of uh, waves uh, propagating outwards the localized source. So because it's a compressible and elastic medium. So how do you actually go about seeing these? Is this something that you can see in the optical? Do you have to look in different wavelengths? Well, actually, the corona is very hot, so hence it's very difficult to see it uh, in the optical band only during eclipses, so we have more or less uh, acceptable uh, images and movies uh, of the solar corona. But routinely we use uh, space-borne uh, UV telescopes, so operating the extreme ultraviolet band. So, which corresponds to the temperature of the corona, so it's about 1 million Kelvin. Or we use uh, radio observations, so using uh, ground-based uh, radio telescopes and radio interferometers. Do you see a lot of these of these waves and oscillations? Are they quite common, or is it something that's quite rare to come across? It used to be an exotic <laughs> phenomenon, so 15 years ago when so all this began. But now it's uh, routine observations, because now the uh, resolution of modern telescopes so especially telescopes specifically designed to study waves and oscillations like so the uh, atmospheric imaging assembly uh, telescope on the uh, solar dynamics observatory or uh, rosa camera which is attached to ground based telescopes so now we have actually so every day we can have several events of this kind so possibly even so it's continuously and always there but it's near the very threshold of the resolution of modern observational facilities are they kind of correlated with any any particular solar event like uh, like flares or outflows or loops or anything like that yeah no it's exactly what i mentioned so if you have an elastic and uh, compressible medium any perturbation any say burst or explosion would cause development of this perturbation in the form of a wave so certainly solar flares do cause uh, waves and oscillations. But the other way around possibly is also correct. Possibly flares are caused by, are triggered by this, uh, say, waves coming from some remote sites. And you've said you kind of, you get these perturbations. And what sort of timescales are you, do you look at? How often do they oscillate, I guess? Mm -hmm. No, if you're asking about the period of oscillation, so the typical period are from few seconds uh, actually, possibly even lower or shorter, so talking about sub-second timescales, uh, and up to, say, tens of minutes, say 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Uh, in the stellar mega flare, which I mentioned today, so we are talking about 30-minute uh, period of oscillation. So this is something which is definitely corresponds to our perception. So it's not like, say, several years of period. It's something which we can definitely observe watching the movie or just, say, simply uh, using any instrument. That's great. And you actually showed a couple of those movies in your talk and they were, it was very interesting to see it kind of sped up, but sort of in real time, I guess, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it's not exactly the real time because we need to accelerate so the movies a bit, but it's still almost the real time because, for example, the typical duration of, uh, say, kink oscillation is one hour. So the period is several minutes. So I mean, it's something which you definitely can watch. So not well, getting bored and... <laughs> So you mentioned you mentioned kink oscillations just then, and also in your talk you mentioned a few other different types. Now, what kind of differentiates these different types? No, it's just symmetry uh, of the perturbation. In physics, we always use some kind of simplification, 
And also we always try to use some specific terminology. So hence this term kink oscillation or sausage oscillation or longitudinal oscillation it simply refers to the uh, symmetry of the perturbation. For example, in the sausage perturbation, so we have the oscillating structure uh, experiencing the contraction and expansion periodic, but the axis of the structure doesn't change its position. While in the kink oscillation, the actual, say, area of the oscillating structure doesn't change, but the axis goes up and down or, say, west-east. Are there any of these that you see more often than others? Is that one that's kind of more observable than the others? Yes, uh, actually, so it's interesting because uh, so it's something which we keep um, working on uh, for very long time. So at the moment, it looks like this uh, low amplitude and kink oscillations are persistent, meaning so they are always there. So they don't they don't die out. There's no damping no, involved. No, no, it looks like continuously excited. Likewise, we have propagating uh, longitudinal waves over sunspots, for example, and they're very monochromatic. It looks like there is some kind of maser mechanism, acoustic maser mechanism operating on sunspots. And so, what do you mean by an acoustic maser? Uh, well, I would like to know <laughs> how it operates exactly, but so we definitely have something very monochromatic uh, emission, so with a period of about three minutes, which lasts for several days, maybe even longer, because it can be traced during the, say, passage of uh, the sunspot over the disk of the sun, which takes about, say, 10 days, because the rotation period of the sun is 28 days. So uh, it is definitely a very monochromatic an observation, and there must be some physical mechanism for that. So the only mechanism I can think of is the maser mechanism. So by observing these different types of waves and oscillations, what are you able to actually kind of discern about the mm-hmm. sun from that? Yeah, it's a very good question because it's exactly actually the purpose of the, say, research of my group. So our area of specialization is what we call MHD uh, seismology, meaning so the use of these waves and oscillations to get sometimes unique information about the physical parameters and physical conditions uh, of these uh, plasmas. Actually, so this uh, method of MHD seismology is not only unique for the corona of the sun, it is used in uh, controlled fusion research in tokamaks in particular, but there it's not called seismology, it's called spectroscopy, MHD spectroscopy, because there they are able to excite some of these modes just artificially. What do you mean they're able to excite them artificially? Uh, no, in tokamaks they can control, for example, the magnetic field, and they cause the perturbation of the magnetic field exciting a certain mode. Oh, okay, so this is e- like experimental. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. Yes, I'm talking about the laboratory uh, plasma reactors. Yes. Okay. So also similar oscillations are seen in the magnetosphere uh, of the Earth. Uh, also they are seen in magnetospheres of some uh, satellites like uh, Ganymede also in the Jupiter magnetosphere, uh, and now so we're trying kind of to unify this approach, and in particular in two weeks, so we're running an uh, International uh, Space Science Institute workshop, so just dedicated to the study of MHD waves in the corona of the sun and in the Earth magnetosphere. In August in Moscow, there is the COSPAR uh, General Assembly. It's a major conference, and there will be a two-day session, so dedicated to MHD seismology of space, solar, and astrophysical plasmas. So just trying to unify all this understanding and so combine our efforts. So this is seen in a, a massive variety of objects. Yes. So I, I mean, I've only heard of them referring to the sun. No, also it's seen in, say, stellar objects. It's seen in astrophysical disks. So it's seen in astrophysical jets. So it's something which is very universal, possibly. But only now we kind of approaching the position of being able to combine all in one model and so have this unified understanding. Sounds like a really exciting time yes, for this. Yes, definitely. <laughs> 
Also, possibly I should mention the very young science because everything began just 15 years ago. So everything I was talking about is achievement of the kind of very intensive international competition, possibly, <laughs> but in a good sense, obviously. So just in 15 years. That's an incredibly short time scale. Yes. A lot, a lot of things often take years and years and yes, years. Yes. So what actually kind of sparked it off? Do you know? This area was it just improvements in instrumentation? Yes, yes, it was improvement in instrumentation. When so the uh, time scales and spatial scales, so which became available uh, for observations, so allowed us to resolve these waves and oscillations in time and in space simultaneously. So that's the crucial actually to be able to see the say resolve the period of oscillation and the wavelength. Brilliant. Yes, and in that time, obviously, we used some uh, instruments uh, dedicated to completely different tasks. So now, for the first time, we have the first dedicated instrument, which is this atmospheric imaging assembly on SDO, so the Solar Dynamics Observatory. So that's part of the Solar Dynamics Observatory? It's one of the uh, three instruments, or four instruments on this uh, spacecraft, and uh, so one of four aims of this uh, telescope, or assembly of telescopes, is to study waves and oscillations in the corona. How long is that telescope going to be up there for? How, how long is it going to be operational for? Is it kind of quite a long-term project? No, I think it's 15 years, definitely. So actually it very much depends upon funding because it's an American mission, so NASA mission, and have you, I believe you've heard about so these financial difficulties they experienced. <laughs> so, it's, uh, so technologically, I think it can stay there for a very long time, say 20 years possibly. That's excellent. But how long the funding is going to be available. But So we are looking forward to have new toys to play with. For example, so there is the uh, European Space uh, Agency mission called uh, Solar Orbiter. So it will be launched in 2017 or 2018, possibly. And it's going to dive in the corona of the sun. It's going to go actually into the yes, corona. Yes, so close uh, approach. And so obviously, so we'll have much better resolution. All, say zoo of associated problems because obviously the hostile environment so this radiation of the sun will be enormous so hopefully the thermal shield uh, ceramical uh, shield would survive but nobody knows also the telemetry will be very restricted because so the spacecraft actually will be very close to the sun but hopefully so we'll get something absolutely breakthroughish that sounds amazing <laughs> thank you very much for talking to us all about the MHD waves and oscillations in the solar corona. Okay, thank you very much. So it's my great pleasure. Thanks for that, Christina. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. So, Christina, what do you have for us this month? Uh, so I'm going to talk about the docking of the Cygnus spacecraft with the ISS. Um, now, Cygnus is one of the capsules that are produced by the commercial companies, um, who have a contract to resupply the ISS. So since the shuttle was retired, um, NASA has been encouraging companies to to develop um, spacecraft and um, capsules that are able to resupply the ISS. And currently they're all unmanned, but in the future they are hoping to have personnel. I think in about three years' time they're hoping to send up personnel on these commercial spacecraft. But on the 12th of January, the capsule was captured using a robotic arm and attached to the ISS. On board was a large number of science experiments from across the country and across the world. As well as that, they also carried um, some provisions for the astronauts, um, some new hardware, some spare parts. And in addition to all that, they also brought some Christmas presents for the astronauts from their families. So the Christmas presents the Christmas presents arrived on the 12th of January? Yes, the Christmas presents arrived on the 12th of January. Did they use Super Saver delivery? Because this happened with some of my Christmas presents as well. 
Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> might be might be the case. Um, in all seriousness, no, they um they had scheduled it to be sent up before um before Christmas. But what happened is the space station got a fault and it had to be uh, repaired. And NASA prioritised repairing the space station over sending up Christmas presents, sadly. So the astronauts got their presents a bit late. Um, But they have received some fresh fruit directly from NASA. So that's quite nice that they'll have some nice fresh food. I think um, Chris Hadfield talked about that on Stargazing Live um, in early January when one of their favourite things is to get fresh fruit and vegetables on the ISS uh, after a long time of eating just dried food and reheated meals. I never imagined that fresh fruit and vegetables wouldn't be a major part of it, but I suppose when you think about it, it makes sense you can use dried stuff instead. But now I'm imagining they're a bit like sailors in the old days who would get scurvy until a supply of limes arrived. (laughs) (laughs) And they're all eating biscuits with space weevils in them. (laughs) I'm pretty sure NASA makes sure that their astronauts don't get scurvy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see a, a movie actually on YouTube of how to cut open an orange in zero gravity you know without little bits of orange juice squirting all over the place and just flying around the space station I don't think that's possible in any kind of gravity to be honest <laughs> <laughs> we should tweet some of the astronauts and see if they'll do it for us so Mark what have you got for us this month um, I've got something about the Chinese space program uh, just before Christmas Chang'e 3 a Chinese lunar lander made the first soft landing on the moon for something like 37 years and it then rolled out a rover called Yutu which means Jade Rabbit and now they've sent back some really high quality pictures from that mission for the first time. Excellent. So some of these admittedly are Chang'e photographing Yutu and Yutu photographing (laughs) Chang'e. So I guess they're mainly for fun and to show that it's there. No selfies? Not exactly selfies. There's a really nice one of Jade Rabbit trundling off into the distance on the lunar landscape, which I really like. And it puts me in mind a little bit of Wallace and Gromit in a grand day out when they had a sort of cooker that was on the moon on I wheels. I think so. Mm-hmm. Skiing. This one is sort of like a, a kind of a, a little trolley on buggy buggy wheels with <laughs> silver foil attached. And it looks like it's got wings, but they're actually solar panels. Yeah. Um, and for that reason, in fact, the rover was sort of hibernating when the sun was not shining on on that part of the moon, which means for about a fortnight, it just hibernated and the temperature went down to about minus 180 degrees C, apparently. Oh, wow. And now it's just sort of coming back to life again. But the coolest picture is taken by an extreme ultraviolet camera on the mission, which pointed itself back at the Earth and took a photo of what's called the Earth's plasmosphere. So there's this sort of green picture with, like, the Earth as a little ball in the middle and then extending several earth diameters around it in a sort of figure of eight or kind of donut shape is a green haze which represents the part of our i suppose you could sort of call it atmosphere or magnetosphere that is um just above what's called the ionosphere and it's relatively cold plasma which is the inner part of our magnetosphere and so that's a really cool picture i've never seen a picture quite like that one before and they have some good scientific instruments on board. So one of the things is looking at the Earth's magnetosphere. They also have a what you might call a normal UV camera. Um, it's an instrument that's apparently equivalent to a six-inch telescope, oh. essentially, and it's for making ultraviolet observations of things like active galactic nuclei and variable stars. So it's actually going to be a fairly long-term astronomical observatory 
on the moon, where of course there's no atmosphere to get in the way. Brilliant. That's really, really good. And what are the the next steps for the Chinese space program? They're basically sort of doing everything the Americans did, but forty years down the line. But it's really, it's really exciting. <laughs> With better be instruments, I guess, yeah. than were available in in the sixties and seventies. Well, ultimately, they want to put astronauts back on the moon. I think that's in roughly ten years' time. Oh, excellent. That's really exciting. I'd like to see people back on the moon. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to be one of those people. But I'm not <laughs> I think I'm the wrong nationality for most current space programs. So. <laughs> One day, Mark. One day. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm I'm moving even further out from the uh, from the solar system, and we're looking this time at exoplanets. Um, so, as most of our listeners will know, because we talk about it all the time, NASA launched the Kepler um, Space Observatory, whose primary mission was to look at exoplanets and to discover new exoplanets, effectively, by looking at small dips uh, in the light coming from stars, which would be caused by a planet transiting across its surface. As we reported in a previous episode, the Kepler telescope isn't working properly anymore because one of its guiding wheels broke, so it can't point at a star with the stability it needs to detect the exoplanet passing in front of the star. But in the time that it was operating, it did manage to capture data on at least 3,500 candidates or so um, for exoplanets, which is a huge amount, and it's data that scientists back on Earth are only now sifting through and analysing to confirm all these possible candidates. One really exciting result that's emerged out of uh, this large amount of data is that scientists reckon they've come up with a new class of planet that doesn't exist in our own solar system. So... If you think about our solar system, planets, there are two types of planets. There are rocky planets, of which the largest is Earth, and then the gas planets, so those start at uh, Neptune. And in between Earth and Neptune, there's this kind of size gap where, well, in our solar system, there aren't any planets in there. But uh, astronomers reckon that now they've found tens of of planets which are between one to four times the size of the Earth, but still smaller than Neptune and that have a completely distinct composition. So these, these guys, instead of being all rocky or all gas, would uh, have, have a structure a bit like a peach um, with a, a rocky core in the centre and a, a gassy envelope, quite a thick gas envelope made up of hydrogen and helium. And so these planets have been dubbed uh, sub-Neptunes or mini-Neptunes, continuing a long tradition of originality in astronomical names. So not much is known about these planets as of yet. Um, scientists have, have sort of classified them by following up Kepler observations with ground observations. So they have used the ground-based telescope, the Keck Observatory in Hawaii, for example, to to measure, to follow up Kepler measurements and uh, estimate the mass and the radii of these planets. And this helps them evaluate the sort of density profile and which led them to conclude that these, uh, these new mini-Neptunes were in a whole category of planet, essentially. And are they quite cold in order to be able to hold on to that big atmosphere? At the moment, most of the planets have been found at a fair distance from their companion stars, so this would indicate that yeah, they would have to be quite cold. There have been, as always, outliers, though, um, including one presumably mini-Neptune, but that has a very, very thin envelope, and that has been caused by the planet somehow um, starting off at a, at a further further orbit, but moving in closer to the star, and when that happened, a lot of the... Well, it's not quite atmosphere, but a lot of the gas envelope got blown off by the heat of the uh, of the star it was orbiting so really really exciting uh, to have a whole new class of planets to to investigate and well stay tuned for a lot more news on uh, mini neptunes and now we have an astronomer in a class of his own answering your questions it's professor tim o'brien with this month's ask an astronomer ted thomas asks when is a vacuum not a vacuum 
In the space between the Sun and the Earth, we have electrons and protons, the solar wind. What density would be required for photons to say, this is not a vacuum, I have to travel slower? Yeah, okay, so, so there is a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, absolutely right to say that um, the space between the Sun and the Earth isn't a vacuum. Um, there, there is stuff there, there's just not very much of it. Um, so there's about, I don't know, something, a few, several, maybe five particles per cubic centimetre mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the space between the planets in the interplanetary medium. So it's very, very low density, um, but it's not a vacuum. And, and for that reason, actually, sound waves can travel through the uh, through space as well, um, but just not very, not the sort of ones you could hear. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so photons uh, will will slow down, actually. And the, and the reason is because... Um, uh, photons are electromagnetic waves, and that electromagnetic wave can interact with a charged particle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when you've got um, an ionised medium, so you've got electrons and protons, say, um, in space, uh, then as the then as the as the wave travels through it, the uh, the wave slows down, um, and it slows down measurably, actually. Um, so it's not really a, a matter of saying you know, what density would be required for them to travel slower. Any density makes them travel slower, in yeah. fact. So it turns out it's really useful, this effect. We use it all the time, in, um, particularly in pulsar astronomy, mm-hmm. um, because we, there's, a, there's a property called the dispersion measure of a pulsar. And what you do is you measure the, you know, for what pulsars are, they flash. Um, so we see this sort of spinning lighthouse effect from a neutron star, and you get a flash every time this beam sweeps past. And if you imagine if the flash was sort of, you know, instantaneous, you'd get this pulse of waves that would all travel together. um, And there's waves of, you know, there's electromagnetic radiation, radio waves, say, of lots of different frequencies in this pulse. Uh, And if you imagine them all sticking together, then when they arrived at the Earth, you would get a, you would get the same instantaneous flash. In fact, we don't see that. The flash spreads out. Mm -hmm. So the pulse spreads out as it travels. And that's basically because... Um, the the lower frequency waves travel more slowly. They're more affected by this interaction with this, with the interstellar medium, with the stuff between the stars and between the planets. Um, so what you do is you measure um, the time of arrival of the pulse at one frequency of radio wave, tune your radio receiver to that frequency, measure the flash, and then you tune your radio receiver to another frequency and you measure the time of arrival of the flash then. Uh, and actually the the difference in arrival time, the, the lower frequency flash arrives after uh, the high frequency fra- flash um, by, um, you know, a measurable amount. Uh, so, so, you know, fractions of a second, but, but a measurable amount. Um, and it basically depends on how far the light's travelled, how far these radio waves have travelled, and what the density of the stuff in space is between between us and the, and the pulsar. And so actually measuring that time delay gives us that quantity this combination of of distance and density that we that we call the the dispersion measure um so actually it turns out to be a really useful way of of estimating um either how far away these things are if we think we already know the density of the stuff or if we think we know how far away the object is we can measure the density of the stuff between us either way but it but it's a real effect and and they all slow down and it's basically just just worse for uh, there's a bigger slowdown for um, low-frequency waves uh, than than there is for high-frequency waves, and there's basically a bigger effect from the uh, electrons, say, than the protons, because the electrons are less massive, and so they're more easily um, 
uh, affected more, they more easily interact with the wave than the heavier protons. Well, that's great and really interesting stuff. So thanks for that question, Ted. Now we have a question from someone who didn't leave their name. I was looking at the astronomy picture of the day image of NGC 2736, which is the Pencil Nebula. Uh, my question is, given the statistic about the speed that it's moving at and everything else, would we notice it if the Sun and the Earth passed through the shockwave of the, nebu- of the nebula? Yeah, it's sort of it's an it's an interesting question again. Um, I mean, this just just to just to explain what this the pencil nebula is, and you should go and look at it. If you go to APOD, APOD, Astronomy Picture of the Day, you'll find the this beautiful picture of the pencil nebula. It's actually part of um, a supernova remnant, so it's part of a, a remnant of an exploded star. Um, the supernova remnant's called the uh, called the Vela supernova remnant. Um, and it's, uh, this, this pencil nebula is quite, quite a, uh, a large structure, several light years across. Um, but this supernova remnant, this supernova explosion itself took place quite a while ago, about 11,000 years ago. So you've got a, a huge remnant, the, the overall remnant, supernova remnants, maybe a hundred light years across. Um, and this pencil nebula is a section of it where if you can imagine, um, a sort of expanding shell, from the ejection of the supernova, you've basically got a shockwave that runs as a result of this explosion. The shockwave runs out through the through the stuff between the stars, and where you're seeing this this shell of material where the gas has been compressed, the interstellar medium has been compressed, for example, if you see that sort of side on, um, it looks brighter because you're sort of looking through it edge on, you see more material along the line of sight than you do in the bits where you see it uh, face on. So so you're sort of seeing where the edges of it is sort of corrugated and you see this brightened section that's called the called the pencil nebula. Now in terms of whether you know whether we'd notice the effect or not, I was thinking one of the easy, one of the best ways maybe to think about this is to compare it to shock waves that we do see all the time here at the Earth, and actually there are shock waves like this in the in the interplanetary medium. So the stuff that the the Earth is sitting in already, so this solar wind that we just talked about in the mm-hmm. last question, um, wh- when the sun has coronal mass ejections and so on, there are shock waves driven through the driven through the interplanetary medium all the time. Mm-hmm. So one could compare the properties of the two just to give us a feel for whether there's a significant difference. So so in something like the Pencil Nebula, we're talking about the the interstellar medium being compressed by a shock wave. Um, and the interstellar medium maybe has maybe one particle per per cubic centimetre, so per little little box, one centimetre on the side. Um, the interplanetary medium is a, li- a little bit denser than that, not much, mm-hmm. so maybe five or so particles per cubic centimetre. So there's not much difference in the density of the gas. In terms of the speeds of the shock wave, the speed the shock wave is travelling through the gas, um, these interplanetary shocks um, can be moving at speeds of maybe a 1,000, um, 2,000 kilometres a second. Yep. So, so one way of thinking about that is, uh, you know, how long does it take before we see the effects of a solar flare at the Earth? And it's 150 million um Kilometers from the from the from the sun to the earth, um, and and then if you think about, we see these things maybe a day or two after they occur. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that gives that sort of number, maybe a thousand, two thousand kilometers a second. Whereas in this um, Penson Nebula shock, um, the estimate is that the shock wave is actually only moving at maybe one hundred and forty kilometers per second, so maybe ten times slower actually. Uh, 
still fast. Yeah. <laughs> 500,000 <000 laughs> kilometers an hour actually is uh, that speed. But, but so we've actually got a situation where I think, um, one could argue, um, that the, the interplanetary shockwaves we already have are actually in some ways more intense than this particular shockwave in this particular nebula. And of course, there we're talking about something 11,000 years after the supernova and a long way away from the supernova now. Of course, the closer you go back in time to the supernova and the closer to the explosion, the more intense the shockwave and therefore you'd see more of an effect. But I hope that's some answer at least to uh, to that question. Yeah, so it turns out we're being battered by uh, particles all the time. Yep. So another question is, does the CMB change in real time or is it a frozen moment? If we observe the CMB in a year's time, do we see radiation that was released a year later than now or do we see the same thing but is it further away due to expansion of the universe? I assume that any changes would in reality be too small to detect with our resolution. Yeah, um, so perhaps we, we should just remind people what the CMB is, the Cosmic Microwave Background. So mm. this is this um, uh, light in the form of uh, millimetre wavelength radio waves now. Um, it was light that set off um, from from every point in the universe um, at a time about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. So, so if you imagine... Um, uh, the universe expanding, um, the density and temperature of the universe reducing after the Big Bang, um, you get to a point where uh, the photons that are around, um, initially the, the the universe is opaque, the photons are being scattered, they're being absorbed, re-emitted from this very dense uh, high-temperature plasma. But as the universe expands, density goes down, temperature goes down, at some point the universe becomes transparent, and the photon, the, the amount of scattering that you get reduces, so the photons become free to travel. The universe becomes transparent. Um, those photons that are, in effect, released at that point from all every single point in the universe, and if the universe is homogeneous, so all the conditions are the same everywhere, that would happen at the same time, if you like, everywhere in the universe. Those photons travel in all different directions from every point in the universe. The The, the, the universe continues to expand, those photons are stretched by the expansion of the universe, so they go from being um, fairly long wavelength, sort of visible, slash infrared light, that sort of wavelength, um, maybe about a micron in wavelength. They get stretched by about a factor of a thousand by the expansion of the universe since then, um, so that now those photons have a wavelength of about a millimetre, um, and they're in this sort of microwave radio part of the spectrum. So as we look out into space now, uh, we look out in a particular direction and we gather these um, cosmic microwave background photons that are arriving from that direction now, today. Mm -hmm. They set off from a point in space a long way away. Um, and they've been travelling for nearly 14 billion years before they reach us. And we can make a map of the CMB now. Um, but that CMB is, that's arriving today is the stuff that arrived from that sort of, as we look around us, that arrives from a sort of shell around us, call it the surface of last scattering, it's called in CMB parlance, this shell that surrounds us at the edge of our observable universe. If we make a CMB map tomorrow, what we're picking up are the CMB, those CMB photons, some of which we just collected today, the rest have travelled past us, heading on on their journey in the universe, off in that direction. If we make a map of the CMB tomorrow, what we collect are the CMB photons that are arriving um from a point in space that's a little bit farther away than the ones we would have collected yesterday or today. 
Um, and so in effect, we're, we are sampling different points in space as you take, make CMB maps at different times. But if, if our assumptions of the universe being homogeneous are true, um, then effectively we'd see the same behavior in the CMB. Um, so we're not looking at the CMB from a different time. We're actually looking at it from a different point in space, in a sense, a little bit farther away than the point in space from which we're collecting it today. And there'd be very little difference. Great. And the final question from Mr. Lindsay Robertson, who asked, why did the original singularity of the Big Bang not remain as a perfectly stable ultramassive black hole? And what triggered the spectacular instability at one particular instant in time? Um, well, the last bit you get a Nobel Prize for, probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, the, the, the idea about what triggered triggered the Big Bang, you know, the current idea rests on inflation, which is about quant quantum fluctuations over a very small region of space and that basically inflating to become our our observable universe. So it's a, effectively a quantum effect that causes that um that that's that expansion. Um but the top the question about the universe uh the, the Big Bang I should say being um a stable ultramassive black hole. Um well I guess they're sort of thinking about these supermassive black holes at the centres of galaxies and thinking about singularities. So there's this idea that um, once, you know, we just talked about pulsars, for example, and pulsars are these neutron stars, which are, um, uh, maybe weigh, most of them seem to weigh about one to two times the mass of our sun, uh, the ones we've been able to measure the mass of, and they're, they're in the, a region about the size of a city, about 20 kilometers across. But if we push the sort of mass up any higher than that, if we sort of add mass to it, um, then one would expect that to collapse. And at the moment, we don't know of any physics that would stop that collapse continuing so that effectively things get crushed to higher and higher and higher densities and, and they pass within their own event horizon so there's there's more mass within that volume um there's enough mass within that volume that means that not even light can escape so you've basically made a black hole but within that maybe that stuff just keeps collapsing and eventually makes a singularity of infinite density mm -hmm. so this there's this same idea of the big bang being a singularity of infinite density so if you take the you know, wind the expansion of the universe back in time to, to t equals zero, then you end up with a den a, a, an infinite density. Now, one could argue about whether you believe in singularities or not, you know, and whether you believe that th there really can be points of infinite density. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily an expert on that particular bit of physics. I'm not convinced that one <laughs> could even have a singularity. But let's say that that's, you know, that the que question relates to that. What I, what I think what probably one, one ought to say um, is that the Big Bang isn't really like a black hole. So there's a sort of assumption in the question that the Big Bang um, is like a, a supermassive black hole. Um, and the reason that's often cited for this is that you think about the Big Bang, if it was a singularity, then it, that encompasses all of space. So in a sort of classical model, the whole of space is at that singularity. Yeah. It's been wound back to t equals zero. And so the Big Bang extends a, would be a singularity that extends across all of space, but it only exists for effectively zero time. Yeah. It exists at t equals zero, and after that time, the universe expands and it isn't a singularity any longer. That would be the Big Bang, but a black hole is a very different thing. So black holes do not encompass all of space. Yeah. So we see black holes at the centre of our galaxy or in stellar systems, Cygnus, Cygnus X3 or whatever it might be. Um, they they appear at a single point in space. 
Um, and maybe they, once they've formed, maybe they exist forever. Maybe the small ones evaporate if one believes th- these models. Um, so, but they're, they're very different. So Black Big Bang maybe is a singularity overall of space, but it, but it exists at a single instant in time, whereas a black hole is something that exists at a single point in space, but perhaps extends over over a long period of time once they form. So I think they are they are different they are different things really. So we shouldn't probably confuse them. Excellent. Thanks for clearing that up, Tim. <laughs> and if you do have any questions that you'd like to ask an astronomer, do send them in via the website. Thanks again, Tim, for answering all those questions. No problem. Thanks for that, Tim and Indy. And now on to the feedback. So we do have some posts this week. We have one funny postcard. Um, so it's uh, an Angry Birds comic, basically, uh, involving the Angry Birds and the Mars Curiosity rover. So I wasn't aware that NASA had partnered with our favourite feathered friends. but uh <laughs> be that's actually been sent from, from Mars. Yeah, of course. Yeah, these are these are actual pictures um, taken by no. <laughs> small little green pigs on Mars. Um, they haven't published the paper yet, but it's coming soon on the archive. And um, so the postcard says, "Dear Jodcast, thank you for another stellar year, and looking forward to more of the same." Smiley face. Jod on from Bill Keck. So thanks a lot, Bill. Uh, we always appreciate the postcards, and especially so if they involve small green pigs and aggressive birds. <laughs> <laughs> that is a rather excellent postcard. <laughs> As usual, check our Twitter feed. I'm posting a picture of the postcard, so if you want to have a look for yourself, go check out our Twitter. On the email, we had a message from Dennis Quinn, who says that he was a digital media arts major at the College of New Jersey in 2009, and he made a composition a musical track with the soundscape of space and its sort of beat, its drum beat, was the sound derived from a pulsar observation that was made here at Jodrell. Nice. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I've always wanted to do some music with that as the as the metronome because it's very regular and he's actually put a really cool, I don't know how to describe it, spacey kind of Yeah, track no, I mean, <laughs> that, that should be the soundtrack to some sci-fi film, I think. It'd be great <laughs> to have that sort of thing in it. So there's a link to it on YouTube, which I'll post in the show notes. You could use millisecond pulsars to make other types of sound as well. Well, yeah, they sort of make a continuous tone. Yeah. So it's difficult to find ones that are quite in harmony with each other. (laughs) They're a little bit um, cacophonous when you put a few of them together. But yeah, if you observed enough pulsars, you'd be sure to find um, all the notes of the octave, I think. ones. (laughs) need to make a new music genre here. There's a lot of scope. On Twitter, we've had a number of tweets. Chris Tibbs says, Wow, I can't believe it's been three years since the Jodcast went backstage and interviewed the BBC stargazing team. So, neither can I. It does not feel like three years ago. <laughs> but hooray for the fourth stargazing live. Yeah. yeah. And Elizabeth Snipes says, Another awesome podcast. So, thank you very much for that. And on Facebook, thanks for all of the shares and likes. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Now all that's left to say is thanks to Professor Valery Nakaryov and Dr. Liz Guzman for the interviews. The editors were Indy Leclerc, Tim O'Brien and Mark Perver. And the producer was Indy Leclerc. 
Until next time, Jordan. Jordan.